Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For this show, I have three brand new movies to review for you. All three of these films were released in the theaters on October 27th, 2023. And a couple of them have been released appropriately for Halloween weekend, especially the first one I'm going to review for you right now. A a number of times I've had to say, I've I've had to sort of be an apologist when I say that not every one of these films is brand new, but a lot of people don't care. It's just kind of a standard that I set. But regardless, the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Five Nights at Freddy's. This is a movie that is based on a media franchise that began as a video game that was made in 2014 that was available for PlayStation and Xbox. And the premise behind Five Nights at Freddy's is that there's this pizza parlor for kids, pizza parlor and uh, arcade, that was popular in the 80s, but in the 90s it shut down. And in its wake, it left behind the animatronics that formed a band at this place called uh, Freddy's, and the animatronics were haunted and also killed people who worked at the place, even though the place wasn't open for business anymore, at least not for customers. In this movie, like in the original video game, a troubled security guard begins working at Freddy Fazbear's Pizza, And during his first night on the job, he realizes that the night shift won't be so easy to get through, despite the place being abandoned. Pretty soon, he will unveil what actually happened at Freddy's. And the movie is off to a relatively grim start. And by grim, I don't necessarily mean a bad start. It's just, this is a horror movie. And interestingly enough, it is not uh, regarded on IMDb as a comedy and it just seems like the comic possibilities for this kind of movie would be endless it seems but on imdb it's classified as a horror horror mystery thriller i got my names mixed up there as a matter of fact i'm not i have never played the five nights of freddy's video game but I have been familiar with the characters from the millions upon millions of dollars that undoubtedly the franchise has made in t-shirt sales alone. And that is just for starters. But I've had to kind of stop myself by, by um, from calling Fab uh, Five Nights at Freddy's Fab Five Freddy's. Fab Five Freddy is a graffiti artist and a hip-hop pioneer. He had nothing to do with this movie, but if he actually made a cameo appearance in this film, putting graffiti on the walls of uh, Freddy Fazbear's, that would have been a very neat cameo. But it also would have meant that I had to trip over my pronunciation of this movie's title. So the security guard in the movie is named Mike. And he's played by Josh Hutcherson. And he has a younger sister named Piper Rubio, who's, excuse me, his young his younger sister is named Abby, and she's played by Piper Rubio. And the two of them live together, although their parents are deceased. And Mike's Aunt Jane, who's played by Mary Stuart Masterson, is stopping at nothing to try to get Abby into her custody, even though Mike is a full-grown adult. He is a financially struggling adult, but he's still an adult nonetheless. And he is so down on his luck with his financial struggles that he consults with a career consultant by the name of Steve Raglan, who's played by Matthew Lillard, and he tells him about this one job as a security guard at a rundown pizza parlor and arcade. And it's it's actually kind of funny when Matthew Lillard says, I have one job available, the pay is not good, and the hours are even worse. And it's a night shift job. And I've worked night shift jobs before. Those are not easy. Now, fortunately, I've never worked those night shift jobs alone. I've always worked when with at least five other people. But still, working the night shift is really hard, especially if you're working alone. But regardless, you look at this place, this Freddy Fazbear's Pizza, and you're kind of wondering how people, A, haven't torched the place already, and B, 
how they haven't broken in and stolen the arcade games. Because I would imagine that you would get a lot for those on eBay, even if they were stolen. I think you'd have to cover your tracks pretty well, but regardless. Uh, Matthew Lillard's character actually says that there's an owner who still wants to keep the place open. And that kind of leads the twist ending at the end, which I won't give away, but it's kind of a weak twist ending because when you look at the place, it is very well decorated. The set design is very good. That's probably one of the biggest strengths of the movie. But at the same time, the place is so run down and so archaic that you're kind of wondering why somebody doesn't actually just bulldoze or take a wrecking ball to the place. Probably they might want to go inside and take some of the animatronics for uh, safekeeping, but regardless. This movie and its premise was undoubtedly inspired by Chuck E. Cheese, the Country Bear Jamboree, and also the Rockafire Explosion. Now, the Rockafire Explosion, the latter band, was an animatronic character band that appeared at a place called Showbiz Pizza from 1980 to 1992. And when the place shut down, somebody actually bought the animatronics and created a viral sensation on YouTube by having the Rockafire Explosion play some hit songs. Like, back in 2008, 15 years ago, they got... 1.4 million views and counting so far by having the Rock of Fire Explosion play and sing along to Usher's song, Love in This Club. It's a great video, although because it was made in 2008 and not today, its quality is kind of low, but it's still very funny. But Five Nights at Freddy's could have fun with this idea of these animatr- this animatronic band coming to life and maybe even have more fun with the animatronic band coming to life and killing people. But for some reason, it's just not fun. As a matter of fact, it's boring. And I, sh- I say for some reason, but honestly, the reason is, A, the animatronics don't have any discernible personalities. B, they don't talk, which really doesn't help with the A point that I made. And C, it's really kind of hard to understand what their methods are, why they kill certain people and not others. The movie is rated PG-13, but that doesn't mean it can't be scary. And as the movie progresses, you learn that both Mike and Abby begin to befriend these animatronic toys, but... It's kind of boring, those scenes. They're very sluggish. They're very slowly paced. And you're also wondering why these Five Nights at Freddy's characters are not killing the protagonists or going after them. And the movie doesn't make a lot of sense there. But in addition to that, it's not scary. It's not as fun as it could be. And the pacing of the film is really, really sluggish. And that's a big disappointment because you look at these characters, and even if you haven't played the video game, you know them from seeing the merch on T-shirts, hats, and the stuff you used to be able to buy at um, FYE before they went out of business. But the point is, you could create a lot of discernible characteristics with these characters. And there's no shortage to what kind of fun this movie could have had. And even the song that the animatronic band plays in this movie, which is the 80s song, I Hear the Secrets That You Keep, isn't a really fun song. I mean, it kind of is, but it would have been great if they had created their own music kind of like Tim Burton did in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And yeah, a lot of people have said that Willy Wonka song that he made for that Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie is annoying, and it most certainly was, but at least it was original. So Five Nights at Freddy's is a major disappointment. There were significant parts here where I nodded off. I wasn't really impressed by the twist ending, and I also thought that the movie really missed out on making this movie actually fun. It could have been scary and fun at the same time, and the comic possibilities would have been endless. But instead, even though Josh Hutcherson and a few of the other actors here, like Piper Rubio and Elizabeth Lale and Matthew Lillard, don't act poorly, it's unfortunately a lost cause, which is why I give Five Nights at Freddy's my rating of a flunk out. It's a high flunk out, but still, an F plus is an F. And 
the movie could have been a lot more fun than it ultimately was. They could have pumped a lot more original music into the film and could have put as much effort into the story and the music as they did into the very impressive set design. Instead, you have a very forgettable movie that at the end of the day is only really worth watching once. And even at Halloween, you could probably find something better and scarier and not to mention more fun to watch instead. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Freelance. This is the latest action comedy starring John Cena and is directed by Pierre Morel, who had previously directed such action films as Taken. And that's the film that puts Liam Neeson back on the map. But to what cost? (laughs) Well, that's another story for another time. But Taken was his second feature, and it made a big splash and was such a big hit that it had two other sequels, none of which Pierre Morel actually directed. And his repertoire has been a lot of action films, but not a lot of action comedy films. And you can probably see where he's lacking in the comedy direction department, which doesn't make him a bad director. There are great directors who can't do comedy. Steven Spielberg is one of those people. For example, the movie 1941 that he made in 1979 had a lot of comic heavyweights in it, including Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. And while it was an impressive film to look at, it wasn't really very funny. But you could see Steven Spielberg trying his best. It's just comedy is not Steven Spielberg's forte, but it does not make him a bad director by any stretch of the imagination. And I think even he would admit that. But Freelance is a film about an ex-Special Forces operative whose name is Mason Pettitz, played by John Cena, and he takes a job to provide security for a journalist as she interviews a dictator. But a military coup breaks out in the middle of the interview, and they are forced to escape in the jungle where they must survive. And the Spanish-speaking people in this movie frequently call him Petite, which is a bit ironic considering that John Cena is six foot four and built like a linebacker, but it's not exactly funny. But the president that the journalist in this film, whose name is Claire Wellington, who's played by Alison Brie, is interviewing, is a man by the name of Juan Venegas, who is played by Juan Pablo Raba, who actually is very funny in this film. And he is the president of Paldonia. And if you haven't heard of Paldonia, that's because the country doesn't exist. But it is presumably a country in Central or South America where the majority of its residents speak Spanish. And President Juan Venegas could be based on a lot of people. To me, he seemed to be based on Hugo Chavez, the late Hugo Chavez, who, surprisingly enough, has been dead for 10 years now that I think about it. But like Hugo Chavez, he's celebrated by some and also hated by others, thereby making him controversial. And also, Mason Pettitz has actually a backstory with President Juan Venegas, and it's not exactly pretty. But he is working, actually, as a lawyer, and he's married and he has a precocious daughter, John Cena's character does, and he's kind of bored with the lawyer life, and also, his own wife doesn't even consider him a real lawyer, which is probably one of the weakest parts of this movie, because he went to law school, he passed the bar, and he works in an office where people come to him for legal advice. How that doesn't make you a real lawyer, I don't exactly know. It would be one thing if he was like Jimmy McGill or Saul Goodman where he got his law degree by mail from the University of Samoa. That's, I mean, of course, I don't know if the University of Samoa has a good law school or not, but when you get your law degree by mail, that's not exactly um, going to assure your clients. But regardless... John Cena's character 
actually has a person with whom he worked as a special operatives agent who's only known as Mason's boss in this film, and he's played by Christian Slater. And he's the one who offers John Cena's character $20,000 to be the bodyguard for Allison Bree's character. And, of course, $20,000 is <laughs> not very easy to turn down, so John Cena's character takes the job, and then havoc ensues. And John Cena has some great moments particularly towards the in, in the action scenes. The scenes where he's funny don't always land, but there's actually one scene where he throws out his back and then the president, Juan Venegas, asks him if he wants a, a back massage. And the look that John Cena gives Juan Pablo Raba is very funny. And there are moments like that in the movie here and there. And I do think that John Cena and Alison Brie also had some good chemistry together, even though they're not supposed to be romantically linked. After all, John Cena's character is married. Whether or not that's happily is up for debate as you watch the film. But there was one scene in particular between John Cena and Alison Brie that I didn't like, and it was where Alison Brie was scantily clad and showing John Cena various tattoos she had all over her body. And when I say all over her body, I mean, yeah, <laughs> in a lot of very risque places. The film is rated R, and you do see some skin of Alison Brie, not any full frontal nudity, which might disappoint some people. But the point here is this, that it was kind of out of character for Alison Brie's character to be that flirtatious especially when John Cena's character is married. And I thought that whole scene just really didn't work. And it also didn't reflect very well on Alison Brie's character being a very serious journalist. Granted, there are some scenes where you see some of her early reporting days on MTV-like shows, but that's beside the point. It still didn't excuse that sort of overly flirtatious part of the movie. And it really spoke volumes that the that there was only one writer for this film and that writer was male, uh Jacob Lentz. And I'm not saying Jacob Lentz is a bad writer, but I th I think he he or some other producers in Hollywood just added that scene just to attract the attention of other men, not that any other scene wouldn't attract them. And I, I think that's really too bad. And I do feel bad for Alison Brie for having to act that way in such a movie. And I think that Alison Brie as an actress, even though she is very attractive, deserves a lot better. Because in addition to being an attractive actress, she's also very smart and very versatile. And that scene right there kind of undermined her versatility. But Freelance in particular is a film that made me chuckle here and there. The action was the movie's biggest strength, but it also should have been more funny than it ultimately was. But you could definitely see John Cena, Alison Brie, and their frequent co-star Juan Pablo Raba doing their best. Also, Christian Slater is one of those actors who used to be everywhere a couple of years ago. And whenever he pops up in a movie, it's kind of like, oh, I haven't seen you for a while. But Christian Slater might be one of those people like Nicolas Cage who is eventually inching his way to a comeback. Who knows? But Freelance is, by and large, not a special movie. It's okay. It, had a couple, it got a couple of chuckles from me. And it probably got the biggest laughs from me when it wasn't trying so hard. But I do give Freelance my rating of a checkout. I don't think it's a film that is necessarily one you should go out of your way to see on the big screen. But when it comes to a streaming platform like Netflix or Hulu, I think it's worth a look. But maybe not more than that. But I do think that the over-sexualization of Alison Brie's character brought this film down quite a few notches. But... Also, there should have been a female writer behind this who probably would have given a, a lot more dimension and maybe a little less temptation to Alison Brie's character and probably would have made her a better character, even though she was pretty good as it was. But instead, you have somewhat of a forgettable film, but it certainly has its moments.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is called Inspector Sun and the Curse of the Black Widow, or in some markets, it's just simply known as Inspector Sun. But this is a Spanish-language animated film, uh, computer-animated, that is, and the cut that I saw in the United States was dubbed into English, and dubbed very well, I might add, because the character's lips matched perfectly to the English voiceover actors. And in Spain, this movie is known as Inspector Sun y la Maldición de la Viuda Negra. And this was based on a script written by Rocco Pusillo, which won the 2013, yes, 2013 Samuel Goldwyn Writing Award. But when you actually see this film, at least in the English dub, it kind of seems like it was lost in translation a little bit. In other words, it seems like the English translation didn't really do the characters in this film a lot of justice. First of all, the character of Inspector Sun is an original character. He's not based on a character from a book or from a comic book. He is actually just his own um, character here in this movie. And Inspector Sun is a huntsman spider who is shine intelligent. And when we first meet him, he's already in the middle of solving a mystery. And this is a film that actually takes place primarily on a seaplane that's flying from Shanghai to San Francisco in 1934. And this anthropomorphic spider, Inspector Sun, is, in a mission, is on a mission against his foe, the Red Locust, with the mystery vis-a-vis the death of Dr. Spindlethorpe as a backdrop. Now, the movie is called Inspector Sun and the Curse of the Black Widow, and there is a Black Widow spider in this film who's a femme fatale by the name of Arabella Kiltop, and she is voiced in the English dub by Jennifer Childs Greer. But the movie makes you think, from the title of the film, that she's the villain because this is the curse of the Black Widow. When, honestly, this uh, Red Locust is the one who's the real villain. And already the movie kind of sets you off on the wrong foot by telling you or implying who the villain is when it's really somebody else. But the biggest problem I had with this movie was actually the lines that were given to the characters in the English dub. Now, Rocco Pusillo wrote the original screenplay in Spanish, but there was additional material that was added to the screenplay by Toby Davies and David Friedman, who I could tell you assuredly, even though I haven't done any background checks on them, that they are not from Spain. They are not Spanish. I can tell that already from their names, but you can definitely tell that they added probably a little more unnecessary dialogue to this film because there are a lot of instances here where the characters are telling the audience and kind of breaking the fourth wall about what they think is going to happen next. And I hate it. I absolutely hate it when characters do that, when they say, oh, this is the part where this character does that thing and this character does another thing. No, no, no. Don't tell me how I think the story is going to go. Tell the story and stop being clever about it. And I was especially disappointed when Inspector Sun, who's voiced in the English dub by Daily Show correspondent Ronnie Cheng, did that. And he did it a lot. And also, I did think that Ronnie Cheng was miscast as the voice of Inspector Sun. Because the character, I wasn't exactly sure, Inspector Sun, if he was supposed to be from Spain, from America, from China. I didn't exactly know. And the the character's look doesn't exactly match with Ronnie Cheng's voice. And there are also some moments where Ronnie Cheng can't pronounce his R's. And there are some words that he says, like swarm, which he pronounces swam. And I had to think for, my, for a second, what is swam? And I think that if I saw the Spanish dub of this with English subtitles, that ambiguity would have been cleared instantly. But another thing I didn't like about Inspector Sun is the fact that he's not a particularly intelligent character, but 
He is a, a world-renowned detective. So world-renowned, in fact, that there is a jumping spider named Janie, who's a child who's voiced by Emily Klimo in the uh, English dub of this movie, who accompanies him. But Janie actually solves the mystery before Inspector Sun does. And I've seen some detective stories on film where the detective is not especially intelligent, but sometimes the comic possibilities of an unintelligent detective are ripe. But, but then when you have people who aren't supposed to be smarter than the character figuring out the mystery before they do, you're just wondering less, Oh, this is funny. And more, why is inspector son a detective? If he can't solve a mystery that a child literally could solve it's it's just one of those things that won't make a lot of adults laugh and it certainly won't make a lot of children laugh either and i also thought that introducing inspector sun in the movie as an already established world-renowned detective at least amongst the insect community or the bug community might not have been the way to go because the audience, regardless of their age, won't know who Inspector Sun is. What I wanted to know is, how did he become a detective? Why does he like being a detective? And that's something you get from the original Sherlock Holmes movie. You get a guy who's not only very intelligent, but very passionate about solving mysteries and never gets discouraged because he loves what he does. But here, it seemed like Inspector Sun was lazy. And also... How did he get the name Inspector Sun? There's nothing really sunny about a huntsman spider. That's probably one of the things that's not translated very well from the Spanish version of this movie to the English dub. So there are a lot of disappointments about Inspector Sun and the Curse of the Black Widow, particularly the English title of this film, which actually is translated word for word from the Spanish title. But even still, when the Black Widow is, the, is not the villain of the film, why is there a curse of the Black Widow? There, there should have been a more clever title, and it's really unfortunate that it wasn't. So, Inspector Sun is a movie that kids might like. The animation is very good for a film that's not Disney, DreamWorks, or any of the major animation studios, but its material is not particularly intelligent, at least from the English dub, which is why I give the English dub of Inspector Sun and the Curse of the Black Widow my rating of a strikeout. I was actually very impressed by the animation and the character design. I just wish the characters were a lot more memorable and that Inspector Sun was both A, a more intelligent character, and B, a more sympathetic character, and C, also not breaking the fourth wall and trying to be the comic relief of the movie. I'm not saying he didn't have to be funny, but at least he had to be funny with some sort of purpose. And as as intelligent as Inspector Sun is allegedly supposed to be, he didn't seem to have the intelligence to know when to shut up. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, or at least the first part of my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of October 29th through November 3rd, 2023. And I'll also do my second segment on the movies that are subject to being released in theaters on November, the week of November 5th through November 10th, 
2023. And the reason I'm doing that is because next week I will be off. I'll be taking a week off from doing my show. It's not going to be the only weekend I take off from doing my show in November. And it really kind of hurts because I love doing this show. But of course, there are times where I have to take a break. And also on November 3rd, 2023, I, your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, will be turning 41. It's kind of amazing how I've made it this far, and I hope I don't go anywhere anytime soon. But regardless, the movies that are coming out the week of October 29th through November 3rd, 2023, there are a couple of them here and there. For example, on Sunday, October 29th, 2023, there's a movie that's coming out that's called Miracle in East Texas. And this movie is directed by Kevin Sorbo, who famously played Hercules on TV. And since his Herculean days, even though he still looks very good and could probably pass for Hercules still, he's been largely acting in faith-based films. And I think that this film is faith-based, although I'm not entirely sure about that. It's coming out in theaters on a Sunday and probably being released through Fathom Events, probably for a couple of days, and it'll be released on streaming eventually after that. But this is a movie about two con men who try to convince a group of widows to invest in worthless oil wells during the Great Depression. The movie stars Kevin Sorbo, in addition to him directing, and also co-stars Tyler Maine, John Ratzenberger, Cliff Clavin from Cheers, and Louis Gossett Jr., amongst other people. Academy Award-winning Louis Gossett Jr., I might add. Now, I do know that Kevin Sorbo and John Ratzenberger are among the few successful Hollywood actors who are also conservative, but I don't know if this film is faith-based or not. But I would actually be interested to see it, and I'm trying to avoid the previews. If I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show, but I'm not guaranteeing that I will. And on October 31st, 2023, there are six horror films that are subject to being released in the theaters. I don't think it's a very good idea for horror films to be released on October 31st. I think it's okay for, I I think it's wise, prudent to have them be released before Halloween in the couple of days or a couple of weeks before. And I'm not going to go through these plot for plot because there are too many films here. And I really got to get to the ones that are coming out on Friday, November 3rd, my 41st birthday. But I'll just tell you what they are. The films are Listen Carefully, A Wicked Breed, Dark Haven, Crypt of Evil, He Killed in Ecstasy, and There Is No Sanctuary. I am not going to go through all the plots of these films, but if you want to see them, just check your local listings on October 31st. If they are coming out in a theater near you, which it doesn't seem to look like they are. On November 3rd, 2023, there are several movies that are subject to being released in theaters. One of them, perhaps the biggest one of that weekend, is a movie that's called Priscilla, and it is about Priscilla Presley. It is a biography that comes on the heels of last year's Elvis film that was directed by Baz Luhrmann, which had a few weaknesses. One of its biggest weaknesses was having Tom Hanks as Colonel Tom Parker, but this one is directed by and co-written by Sofia Coppola, and it's about teenage Priscilla Bollier, who meets Elvis Presley, the man who is already a meteoric rock and roll superstar, and becomes someone entirely unexpected in private moments, a thrilling crush, an ally in loneliness, and a vulnerable best friend. So, coming after last year's Elvis film is a very tough act to follow, but I'd be very interested to see how this film is. And Sofia Coppola is a great director, and she definitely learned from her father in that regard. Not a great actress, but she kind of knows where her strengths and weaknesses have been, albeit on the public stage. But Priscilla is played in this movie by Kaylee Spaney, who I honestly don't know very well. And she she is an American actress. She's from Missouri. And she actually played the daughter of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Jane Ginsburg, in the movie On the Basis of Sex. She's also been in some other films that I've seen, like Bad Times at the El Royale, which is, I think, an underrated film that could ultimately become a cult classic a little while later. But this is her first starring role. It's definitely not her first role in film. 
the the actor who's playing Elvis is a man by the name of Jacob Elordi, who is in the three Kissing Booth movies, uh, one of which I gave my rating of a knockout to that I really wish I could take back. I probably have taken it back, but he definitely has a certain charisma and a charm. He might be a little tall to play Elvis. He's six foot five, but he's definitely got the charm to pull off playing Elvis. So Priscilla is a movie that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show, but not next week's show because I will be off then. There's another film that is subject to being released in theaters in 2023 that stars a woman we haven't heard from in a while in terms of her film repertoire. She was somebody who was in the 90s and in the late 80s in films all the time. But as she got older, she became less of America's sweetheart, largely because of her age. And that actress, of course, is Meg Ryan, who is starring with David Duchovny in this film. And it's about ex-lovers by the name of Willa and Bill. Interesting how you have two people who are together called Willa and William. But regardless, I suppose it happens. But they will see each other for the first time in years when they both find themselves snowed in, in transit, at an airport overnight. And Meg Ryan, interestingly, not only stars in this film, she also directed it and she co-wrote the film. So good for her for getting back into the the Hollywood game, even though she hasn't had a career as prolific as... Tom Hanks, for example, her previous uh, co-star. And this is actually not the first film that she's directed. She also directed another film in 2015 that was called Ithaca. And even though I was hosting Words on Film back in 2015, I didn't actually see Ithaca. Uh, But she uh, is definitely returning to her romantic comedy roots. And I hate to say this and sound like a sexist pig, She looks good for her age. That's not the only important thing, but what happens later is a movie that I will try to see. And normally I've, I've said before that romantic comedies are lame, or at least I've told my friends this, but I've also told people recently that I don't have a favorite genre anymore. I only like good films and it doesn't really matter what those genres actually are. But what happens later is a film I will try to see and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on November 3rd, 2023 is a movie that's called The Marsh King's Daughter. And this stars another woman we haven't seen in a while, but it's only been a a couple of years. This one is Daisy Ridley, who plays a woman who seeks revenge against the man who kidnapped her mother. And in addition to Daisy Ridley, the movie also stars Ben Mendelsohn, Brooklyn Prince, and Gil Birmingham, amongst other people. And there really isn't too much to say about this film other than that, but it's good to see Daisy Ridley kind of break away from being in the Star Wars films. Granted, she was excellent in the Star Wars films. The Marsh King's Daughter is a film that is coming out on November 3rd, 2023, and I will see it, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on November 3rd, 2023, is a movie that's called All Dirt Roads Taste of Salt. I guess you have to actually taste the dirt roads to realize that, but this is a film that is a drama, and it looks like it has hit the independent circuit, including the Toronto International Film Festival, a film festival, by the way, I would love to go to someday. Maybe next year. Maybe I'll make it a New Year's resolution. I don't know. But this is a decade-spanning exploration of a woman's life in Mississippi and an ode to generations of people's places, and ineffable moments that shape us. It's a very broad description, but the movie is directed by and written by Raven Jackson. She also directed a film in 2018 that was called Nettles, although that was a short film. But All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt is her feature film directorial debut. And it probably made a splash at the Toronto International Film Festival, but I don't know for sure. But I'm going to look out for that film. Maybe it's playing at Belcourt, my favorite theater in Nashville, by the way. Just putting it out there. But if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. 
And there are five other films that are subject to being released in theaters on November 3rd. It is unlikely that all these films are going to be coming out in a theater near you. But I'm going to just highlight one before I move on to my next subject. And this one is an animated film that's called Glisten and the Merry Mission. This is a Christmas film, and it's animated. And it follows Mar. Uh, it follows a young elfling by the name of Marzipan and her mother Cinemeg, as Marzipan must believe in the magic of the season and go on an adventure to rediscover the enchanted snow deer named Glisten and save Christmas. And this movie has a number of notable voice talent in it, including Michael Rappaport, Freddie Prinze Jr. The voice of Santa Claus in this film is Chevy Chase. I'm not sure how that's going to be, but regardless, Chevy Chase in, is in this film. And some other acting talent in the film include Billy Ray Cyrus, Dionne Warwick, and Natalie Polison, amongst other people. So I'd be interested in seeing this film. It definitely looks like the animation is very good. And if I see the film, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Maybe one closer to Christmas. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, going into my second section of What's Coming Up Next, where I give you the movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of November 5th through November 10th, 2023. And interestingly enough, there's a movie that is subject to being released in theaters on November 4th, which is a Saturday, and the movie is Titanic the Musical. Now, as you might expect... Why would they make a musical out of an already great film? Well, this film is not technically a movie. It's more like a recording of a live show on stage. But this is a film I'm unlikely to see, but I'm just letting you know that it's out there. On Sunday, November 5th, 2023, there's a movie that's subject to being released in theaters that's called God of Heaven and Earth. And as you can imagine, this is a faith-based film. And for years, scholars have debated whether the miraculous events proclaiming the birth and death of Jesus actually happened. Now, in this documentary, history, science, and technology reveal an astounding amount of evidence in the events in history. Now, this is a faith-based film, but it is a documentary, and it definitely has an agenda. Doesn't mean it's a bad documentary necessarily, but I really don't know about... This whole idea of Jesus having not been born. Jesus is somebody who existed. And I think even people who don't believe in Jesus, like Jews and Muslims, know that. And by believe, they don't believe he's the son of God. That's what I mean. But they know he existed. So there's no question that Jesus was an actual historical figure. The question is whether or not he was the son of God. And that's been up to a lot of theological debate. But rest assured, he existed. So I really don't like it when these faith-based films come out and try to argue with people who claim he didn't exist. It's one thing not to believe in God. It's another thing not to believe in somebody who actually did walk this earth and is not just some figment of somebody's imagination. But regardless, I, I guess that's me. But regardless, that movie, God of Heaven and Earth, is coming out or subject to be released in theaters, presumably by Fathom Events, on November 5th, 2023. On November 7th, 2023, there is a documentary coming out, which I hope actually comes out in a theater near me. This one is called Pencils vs. Pixels. This is a documentary about animation and uh, the synopsis that's given to me, and I swear I'm not making this up, says... It's a documentary. That means there is no plot. No, that is not what it means. Documentaries still tell stories. So whoever the pretentious d*** who wrote that, um, that synopsis was, obviously was not um, very well informed. But anyway, this movie is narrated by Ming-Na Wen and features such panelists as Kevin Smith, 
Seth MacFarlane and Leonard Maltin, amongst other people. But this is probably a movie about the debate between whether animation should be hand-drawn or CGI. I like both ways. I especially love a movie that tells a great story, regardless of how it's animated. And that's really the key to um, a great film, not just a great animated film. But I do appreciate the animators who put in that extra effort to draw a movie by hand or even to create clay or wooden figures and create stop-motion animation. That's really impressive when people can do that. So Pencils vs. Pixels is a film that I know premiered at this year's Nashville International Film Festival. I didn't get to see it, but I really, really want to see it because it is a very fascinating topic. And it looks like it's made by people who really appreciate the art of animation. So this is a film that I will see. I may not see it on November 7th when it's subject to being released in theaters, but I'll see it and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Now, on November 10th, 2023, there are several big movies that are coming out. One of the biggest is the film from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which has been showing signs of running out of gas. But this film is The Marvels. And there are a couple of things that are working against the movie The Marvels. First of all, the MCU, which is, and the Marvels film is the 33rd film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think it's great that a franchise like this is still going strong and still kind of holding on to the plot elements of other films, but that's the one thing that's working for it. There is a sense of comic book movie fatigue, and not just from the MCU, especially from the DCEU as well. And the second thing is that Brie Larson is experiencing somewhat of a public relations backlash based on some things she said. For instance, there's one time she was quoted in an interview where she's saying, I don't care what movie critics, male movie critics in their 40s think. Well, I'm a male movie critic in my 40s, and I don't really care about her saying that. If she doesn't care what I think, fine. I don't expect anybody to care what I think. But I do this show to give you my opinions. But, you know, the, the point I'm making is this. I don't think any less of Brie Larson for making that statement. It it was obviously made to be ironic, and I do think it's really troubling when women say one or two things that, that might offend some people, and automatically they're written off or they're canceled. And it takes a lot more for a man to say they have to be flagrantly offensive, and even then, they may not entirely be canceled. For instance, Kanye West said that slavery is a choice. He said that on film, or rather on the show TMZ. He wasn't canceled for that. It was only when he put out a tweet that said he would go DEFCON 3 on the Jews that he was canceled. He was rightly canceled for that, but people should have seen that coming. But I digress. The Marvels, Brie Larson returns as Captain Marvel, a.k.a. Carol Danvers, and she gets her powers entangled with those of Kamala Khan and Monica Rambeau, forcing them to work together to save the universe. And Kamala Khan is played by Iman Bellani or Bayani, and Monica Rambeau is played by Teona Paris. And I haven't seen any of the TV shows that are spun off of the MCU, but I do know that Teona Paris played the role of Monica Rambeau in... Uh, one of the shows, one of the ones that starred Elizabeth Olsen, and the name escapes me a little bit, but regardless, this is her feature film debut in the MCU. Also, Samuel L. Jackson is returning as Nick Fury, and he's actually in another MCU show that apparently didn't do very well critically, but I'm not at liberty to say whether or not it was a bad show or not. But The Marvels is a film that I will see, It's kind of required for me to see films in the MCU, and for the most part, I enjoy them. I think, obviously, some are better than others. I mean, when there are 33 films, there are are bound to be a couple of bad apples, but not any rotten ones. I haven't been profoundly disappointed by many of them. I think the quote-unquote worst MCU film has so far been The Eternals, but even that wasn't terrible. 
But The Marvels is a film that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show, presumably when I come back to do my show in a couple of weeks. Another film that I guaranteed will see is a film that's called The Holdovers. This is the latest from director Alexander Payne, and it stars Paul Giamatti, Divine Joy Randolph, and Dominic Sessa. This is a movie about a cranky history teacher at a remote prep school who is forced to remain on campus over the holidays with a troubled student who has no place to go. Now, Paul Giamatti has played a teacher at or a professor at a prep school before in the movie Sideways. I don't believe that he's playing the same character here. And Sideways, like The Holdovers, was directed by Alexander Payne. And this certainly looks like not only a good deadpan film, but also a very subversive holiday movie. And I'd be very interested to see how this film is. And by it being a holiday film, I don't mean that it is a family film. It is, after all, rated R. But uh, I haven't seen Paul Giamatti in a film for quite some time. I'm very interested to see how he is in this film. And this is a film I guaranteed will see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on November 10th is a movie that's called It's a Wonderful Knife. And no, I didn't misspeak there. The movie is called It's a Wonderful Knife. And this is a comedy horror mystery, which is already off to somewhat of a bad start because the movie is a pun. And it's a movie about a woman by the name of Winnie Carruthers, who, after saving her town from a psychotic killer, her life is less than wonderful. When she wishes she'd never been born, she finds herself in a nightmare parallel universe where without her, things could be much, much worse. Already this film kind of sounds stupid, but I don't know. I, I think if the, the script was already clever, that's already a sign that it should be made into a film. And nobody go, sets out to make a bad movie, but you have a film that is a flagrant ripoff of It's a Wonderful Life. And it is subversive, but I don't exactly know if this is going to be a film that I'm going to take for laugh's sake or if it's going to be just a dumb, dumb premise in and of itself. But the movie stars Jane Whittup as Winnie Carruthers and also co-stars Jess McLeod, Joe McHale, and Catherine Isabel. Oh, and also Justin Long is in this film as well. So who knows? Joe McHale and Justin Long can be funny, but if I see this film, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.